Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food. His name is Heston Blumenthal and he is one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet. To celebrate the 25th anniversary of the world-famous Fat Duck restaurant, we're doing a series of specials here on Journey to the Centre of where Heston is revealing the secrets and stories behind some of his Fat Duck's most iconic dishes. Hello Heston, how are you doing? I'm very good Jay, how are you? I'm alright, once again I'm looking behind you into beautiful sun-kissed France, the, the dappled light just coming through the uh, the umbrella above you while I'm sitting in cloudy England again, but yes, are you, it looks nice out there. It is beautiful, the, 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 the mistral is blowing heavily and lots of uh, Van Gogh style swirly twirly clouds. Are you feeling inspired? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do feel inspired as I watch the swallows dance between the trees. Now, Heston, last week we were, we were dining on the incredible sound of the sea. And I do urge you to go back and listen to that if you get the chance, because you will get to discover all about the power of sound to change how we experience our food. But today we're going even deeper into the menu. So, Heston, which dish are we diving into today? So we're now going to... Um, I was going to say move on later in the day. And that's assuming that the sound of the sea was actually during the day. So we're now going to move to nighttime. And this was a dish that was inspired by one of the most iconic um, baby-related smells that we know of. And an idiom. <laughs> Obviously. People ask me, where, random where thing does your for a inspiration dish to come, from? come from? I think, well, where do I start? This is the thing. It comes from... Everywhere, and it comes from quite often making connections that might seem very um, random. So, a very well-known, loved smell of babies, although we associate with babies, shall I say, and an idiom. So, an idiom is a bit like a metaphor. I won't go into the, the, the technical differences. So, the idiom is counting sheep which is the name of the dish so the idiom is called counting sheep the name of the dish is called counting sheep and it was uh, whether counting sheep works or not there's a lot of discussion on this in fact if you believe counting sheep works for you then it will work for you so you think of counting sheep as so getting to sleep when you're younger and the smell i'm talking about is baby talc which is a lovely, comforting it's smell. It's an incredibly it? warm, comforting smell. And so I thought, well, okay, we've got those two as starting points. It, we, I loved the smell of baby towel. When you smell it, I don't know, it just transports you back to, to childhood or maybe when, you know, if you've got children when they were a baby. And it's just the association from it. It's, it's, all, it's all sort of soft and white and fluffy, isn't it? Like a fluffy, uh, like a fluffy. Yeah, it's one of those smells as well. You don't have, you don't, you don't encounter it beyond that sort of period of your life until you have a baby of your own. Exactly. You don't ever encounter it again. Exactly. So it is really locked. Yeah, and, and and I suppose it's if you think about, you know, nappies are fluffy. When you put kids to bed, their beds, it's all fluffy. And when you think of counting sheep, you think of fluffy sheep jumping over fluffy clouds, for example. Some people might do. Wonderful insight into your mind. And so how on earth did you get from either of those to a pudding? I think m most people have a positive association and memory with baby and they smell baby talc. Some might not, but most people, most people do. So I thought, well, it, it smells wonderful, but you wouldn't really want to eat baby talc because there's probably lots of things in baby talc that are not designed to be eaten. They're designed to be sort of 
dusted on your skin. Um, I will bet you tried it though. I will bet. I will bet money that you did. Yeah, I looked try a bit like though. Tom Hanks in Big. Where I'm <laughs> so, but I the smell is lovely, and you think, well, we love. And this comes back to something I touched on in the walk in the woods, the quail jelly dish uh, with the oak moss. The, this concept of being able to taste a smell. So I wanted to. I wanted to eat. I didn't want to eat baby talc. But the things I could smell in baby talc, the one things, the elements I recognised were vanilla, which apparently is the most universally loved smell in the world, uh, was vanilla. Then there was a sort of slightly floral notes, could be rose, uh, fruity notes like orange flower water, tonka bean. Um, there was something slightly, how do you say, lactic, you know, like dried powdered milk which we also share, we do use in desserts, adds a level of richness, um, and various other things. So we started working, doing this, putting this on our project list with a, an incredible perfumier we work with, called Christophe Lodmiel, who I think you and I filmed with before. Oh, I have. He had the most splendid pair of leopard skin trousers I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. He didn't look like your stereotypical, he doesn't look like your stereotypical perfumier. He looks slightly... It, is, it looks slightly edgy. Uh, I think he might have had a Mohican at some point. He did? He had a Mohican? He's a genius with, with perfumes, with, with the molecules of scent, the particles of, of, of smell, let's say. And so I, I asked him, and he came back with a list, a list of, of, of the, those ingredients, plus some, some, some extra ones I hadn't thought of, like tonka bean and pistachios. And the list was about 20... 20 or 20, 20 to 30 ingredients long. So then we started setting about creating this dish, which the idea was to take the molecules, the aroma molecules that were in baby tout that I thought smelt wonderful, find out what foods that we cook with, what ingredients that we cook with, also contain these similar molecules, and then make a dish that tastes of the smell of baby, of baby tout, but in a way that is actually delicious to eat. And we also wanted everything to be nice and white and fluffy. So that meant, uh, well, that turned out to be a, an ice cream, white, which was a uh, milk-based ice cream because we, you know, babies of milk, which had other ingredients in it. Um, freeze-dried yogurt powder. So it's yogurt that's been freeze-dried, which goes, and then when you freeze it, it's got a wonderful cooling sensation and it's got a slight acidity that yogurt, that yogurt has. Um, and slightly sweetened yogurts we also give to give to babies. Then um, we made a, a sort of a soft. I don't know how the texture is like a. Imagine white bread, but much softer and fluffier. And that's the casing, and it's got like a like a, um, a soft caramel with pistachios and orange flower water and stuff inside, and then and then another sort of meringue uh, element to it. And then on there we had crystallized white chocolate which actually any of you guys listening that haven't done this is such a simple thing to do take a bar of white chocolate put your oven on about 100 degrees centigrade and then just break the chocolate up into rough pieces and put it on a on a sheet baking sheet pop it in the oven and then the chocolate will start to to melt and then it will start slightly start to color and it will crystallize and then when you take it out it'll 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 go from soft to being when it's cold it's crunchy 
So it's it I don't it it's like somewhere between a, a white chocolate biscuit with crunchy bits of sugar in it. It's delicious. <laughs> so we have crystallized white chocolate and then we made little biscuits. So warm shortbready biscuits crumbled up to go with it as well. So it's got a lot of ingredients, but all of this this is served on a so you can picture this, um served on a plate that looks like a imagine a sort of round pillow that you've sat on in the middle so it's got an indentation and everything's sat on that but before you get that plate what arrives at the table first is a plastic um like a big pebble white similar to the bowl which is in porcelain and in it is a magnet but we don't tell people that although <laughs> all you guys listening you're now giving secrets away but um this is something that we you and i we we invented actually for one of the feast shows remember we did the space uh, space food where I we remember had it well trying to make levitating zero levitating gravity food. food yeah so it's a magnet and then and then that the, we have a pillow it's not edible but an actual little pillow which has magnets in the pillow and so you it, it takes a bit of practice to get the pillow you place it over the base magnet, the plastic pebble, about six, four to six inches above, and you have to sort of maneuver it carefully in space until you find that the magnets stick, but they all, they repel, they sort of repel and attract at the same time. I suppose it's a bit like the orbit, um, going into, going into um, relativity here, but you know, the fact of with, with the, with the um, Earth's orbit, the planet, the moon's relative position to the Earth stays that way because it's sort of just the same thing. It's it's charged, positive and negative. It's just about enough to keep it in the same place. So then the pillow, when you get it on there, the pillow starts to spin softly, but it stays uh, it stays uh, parallel to the table. So horizontal. Levit it's levitating, isn't it? it? Turns. It's, it's a levitating pillow that's twisting. You're slightly under un, underselling, though. What a massive pain it is to get those things to float. I mean, I'm 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 lucky enough to have been filmed behind the scenes oh when you're my front God. of the house. So that's even and before it can drive you to distraction, can't it? Because you just sometimes you can't get the thing to stay on. Oh, it took an awful lot of practice, again and again and again and again, and then it's hard enough to get it to stay on when it's in situ when it's not move moving. But then we are asking the the team front of house team to carry it poor guys <laughs> poor, poor guys <laughs> but but they did become deft hands at it in the end and so when this so imagine let's rewind you're sitting at the table and and the light we change the color because the, the lights above the tables we can change the color and, and and the intensity of the light so we change the light to a slightly sort of uh warm and a night light imagine a night light for babies that changes and then then the central magnet that's housed in this sort of white pebble gets put on the table with a cushion above it that's turning. And on top of the cushion, if there's four of you at the table, there's four little pillows. They're meringues with some ice cream in the middle. So it's like an ice, an ice cream sandwich with this really very, very light meringue. That looks, they look like pillows. And the pillow itself, the non-edible pillow, is turning. And then there's the chimes of a, a mobile, you know, the baby's mobile that you have above the cot. Um, and then we can personalize those mobiles if you have a favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> so we can do, we can personalize that too, too, uh, as well. Then, and then with that, we get a little cup of our version of Horlicks. Oh, it's really? like a malt, warm malt drink, which is very bedtimey. 
Um, it can be either with, with alcohol or without alcohol, a little bit of whiskey or no alcohol. Um, in fact, um, just a little tangent you might like to know about is the history of Mars. So there is Mr. Mars in America and his son graduated from one of the big universities and he wanted to go in the business and the father said, this country ain't big enough for the both of us. So he said, you'll have to, oh, I'll give you the recipe for Milky Way and you'll have to go somewhere else to, to, to set up shop. So he had this recipe and he decided he had an idea for Maltesers, but Maltesers didn't exist. And this is probably, I don't know, somewhere around 1950. It was just post Second World War. And he needed malt. So he did some research, and I think one of the largest producers of malt, malt product was Horlicks, the Horlicks factory, because it's a malted drink. Right. So he spoke to Mr. Horlicks and befriended him and basically can i have some can i get my malt through you please so the mars factory it was in slough mr mars he then chose to go to slough it's because mr horlicks was there making his malt for his horlicks <laughs> and that's where maltesers started um so anyway coming back to nicely to malt malted drinks for bed counting sheep pillow soft and fluffy chime of the of the 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 little mobile of the babies and then the tray arrives with the plates with the ice cream and the little and 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 the the meringue and the freeze-dried yogurt and the crystallized chocolate and the crumbled up biscuit with extra malt in it and the little sponge with the caramel with the pistachios and the tonka bean infusion and the nice soft vanilla flavor and the orange flower water and the little rose petal delicate rose petal element and bloody bloody blah gets along with a bottle of the little bottle of talc. So that's really just just so you can see. Then the handles, what we've got on the spoons, the handles are fake fur, like um, wool, sheep's wool. And we've just dusted them with talcum powder, with baby talc. So then you eat the dish while you're, you're hearing the chimes. You've eaten the, your, your meringue pillow, you're drinking your malt, the t pillow's turning, and then as you put the spoon to your mouth with the food on it, you smell the talc from the handle of the spoon, and then as you eat the food, you transfer the smell to the flavor in the food. So you bring this, you're sort of consuming um, counting sheep. And also those handles, uh, as you've taught me before, the way that if you hold something, whatever you're holding can affect the texture of food in your mouth. And... I remember you yes. speaking to your guys, and again, you had some of those, not blank faces, but those faces didn't quite get when you were saying, I want a spoon, but I want to wrap it in fur. But it, yeah. the power of it's amazing, and it's very subtle, isn't it? It's really subtle. One, again, it's soft and fluffy, so it ties in with the soft and fluffiness of the whole concept of counting sheep and getting ready to go to bed, night, you know, soft pillows and stuff like that. But also, it's, it, what, what happened there was interesting as well. There's the, there's, the, there's the tactile sensation of the, of the fake fur, but also the spoon seemed lighter. Really? But how can it be lighter? Because I, I know the fake fur wasn't, is not heavy compared to the, the silver spoon. However, it is heavier than without it. However, when you're holding it, it seems lighter. And we just played around with it. Just pick up that spoon and pick up a spoon without the fur on. The one without the fur seems heavier than the one with the fur. Wow. That's a, I didn't even know that. That's, that's I, remarkable. And I, I think 
one of the reasons is because we see the fur and fur is light and fluffy. If we see something light and fluffy, the brain automatically thinks light and fluffy. So you pick it up. It's not like a normal spoon because I'm not used to a spoon that's got covered in fake fur. This is not normal. I'm used to a spoon that's got a plastic or metal or bone handle. So it looks light and fluffy. Pick it up. So it's actually expectation. It's heavier than expectation because expectation is light and fluffy. But in fact, it's a metal spoon. So it's a bit like the crab risotto or the crab ice cream. When you expect, when you expect sweet and get salt, the, the, the perception is it's more salty than when you expect salt and get salt. So if you expect light and get heavy, the contrast, the difference between expectation and what you experience is greater than if you expect heavy and get heavy. I remember you once turned up and you were very, you were very excited. You had your, your, you literally your kid in a sweet shop face. You, you had with you a, um, I think was it a box of matches? Was it the mat, the box of matches? And you, oh no, you the playing cards. Playing cards. You were just like, go on, pick that up, and and you pick it up. But it was like a, is it like a lead weight, isn't it? Inside. The oh packet. my god, yes. So, dear listeners, you can order this on on online. I'm not sure what you have to look up. Uh, trick three packs of cards. Um, and you basically put the three packs down, they're playing cards, and you ask somebody to pick the top, pick the whole lot up. So pick with, in one go, pick up the three packs of cards that are stacked up. Put them down, and then pick up the top one. You don't have to say anything else. Now what happens is the top card pack, the top pack of cards seems heavier than the three packs together. Doesn't make sense. Now. The top card has got a metal block in it, and the bottom two cards have just got foam. So the top card is probably 95% of the, of the total weight. But how does the top card seem heavier than the, than, than the top card plus the other two together? It's because the brain you, or has automatically computed that, right, I'm picking three cards up. Therefore, the first card, the first pack on its own, has to be a third of the total weight of the three cards. However, it's not. It's actually 95% of the total weight. So you expect it to be a third, but it's actually nearly all of the weight. So expectation and realization are much, the, the contrast, the difference between the two is much greater. It's an incredible little simple trick that shows, helps show how, you know, you can't change. I think there is no difference between perception and reality. Reality is whatever you're aware of at any given moment in time. So right now, anybody listening, if I just say, think about the air, the sensation of the air on the back of your left hand. Just think about it. Just change your perception, change your reality. Because all you've done is you just changed your area of focus. That's really That's cool. It. I suddenly felt the air all in the room around me when I did that. <laughs> I, you, don't, you don't think of it, do you? Like you no. say, you, you've only got so much. You've only got so much focus you can, you can handle. Um, I remember we were, we were once with a, oh, I've forgotten his name, uh, wonderful Scottish professor. Oh, Barry Smith. Barry Smith. Yeah, we were yeah. with we were with Barry Smith. He's once. at London University. London University and yeah. a brilliant professor. And he was just talking to me once, similar to what you've been saying about the idea that our brains, there's new thinking now that our brains are basically predictive mechanisms. It's the same way that if you take, uh, you never take a glass off a tray your waitress is holding because that then they'll, they'll go up in the air because they're not expecting it. Whereas they can take yeah. it off and the tray doesn't move because your brain is set to predict all the time. It's not 
reacting. It's almost constantly predicting what's happening in the world. Yeah, then we get into a really, for me, fascinating but complicated subject of past, future and present. So the predictive nature of, of, of the brain, or it's, more, it's not just the brain, but the brain and the gut. Let's say the predictive nature of us, of our thoughts, of our awareness, is influenced by our past experiences. Some things we're, we're in, like we're born apparently with an inherent um, uh, awareness of the danger of fire. But there's many other things that we learn. We either learn from, from like myself, learn from bitter experience <laughs> or people tell us dangerous to do. And stuff. So the, our past shapes our present awareness and our future. So, we, so then we, 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 we're always anticipating things that we think if we're aware that we think they might be good or bad for us, we anticipate that future predictive based on our past. However, you can also argue that our memory and our past is also changed by our present and future moments. And this is the amazing thing about the plasticity of the brain that we've seen with memory. The memories change. You know, I don't know. My memory of my experience at the, uh, the, 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 the restaurant in France became so rich as I would continue to tell the stories about it I when I was there last year I was talking to the owner Jean-Andre and I talk about a sommelier with a handlebar moustache they never had a sommelier with a handlebar moustache but I, I I believed it I imagined it and this is the wonderful but also slightly can be slightly problematic sometimes thing of, of, of our memory um isn't always what it used to be type thing <laughs> and i remember one time in the duck where we have we have these little mini of course these mini, mini variety packs of cereals and these twins were the whole point of this variety pack was just to, st to start a discussion i remember as a kid you know everyone wants the frosties or the sugar puffs but nobody wanted the all brand who was the one that luck unlucky enough to end up getting stuck with the all brand <laughs> and one of the twins said ah oh, yeah my brother always nicked the all brand and he said You've just done something much worse than that. He said, what? He said, you've just nicked my memory. It, it was you, not me. And they started having this full-on discussion about who was the one that ended up with the all brand. Wow. But they so both they believe that they were correct. Memories. Well, we spent yeah. a lot of our time impregnating you with memories for the sake of TV, didn't we? So you're, you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're like the Mancurian that was the, candidate. <laughs> the, the, the classic one, I think we were filming behind Hamleys. I remember this really clearly. And you said, we were talking about pick and mix. And I just said, well, Jay... I was never a big pick and mix fan. I always preferred chocolate. And he said, well, well, you are now. <laughs> so <Never let. laughs> you, you rewrote my childhood to the extent, I think sometimes there are probably some moments where I actually believe that things that things that we covered in some of this, uh, some of the filming were my actual real childhood. But at the end of the day, does it really matter? A wonderful memory is a wonderful memory. Well, exactly. And brace, if, yourself for a segue, brace yourself for a segue back to the dish. What you're saying is really interesting, though, because the counting sheep dish is one of those ones where it does have all those. It has past, present and future in it as well, because it's it's your past latent memories of the smell of baby powder. But yeah. the, pre the present is a complete reimagining of what that is. And the future is because you're in such an environment where everything's so arresting and different. And, and, and you know, up to that point in the meal as well, you've been pushed quite a lot when that yes. dish arrives it magnifies the relaxing nature of it because you're like everything here is <laughs> i'm in a safe space now there's nothing to 
nothing going to mess with my mouth, yeah. nothing going to mess with my mind. And it, it, it magnifies that hugely. That's, that's a really good point. I think that even with creativity, when you still need to, I think people still need to have some anchor. So something they can hold on to. So then they can, they've got a starting point. They know, ah, oh, here's my safe zone. So now I've got, I've got a level of comfort. So I've now feel a bit more confident and secure to let my imagination go. Because let's remember, you don't have to look at a, a painting or listen to a piece of music to live. You don't die if you don't listen to music or watch paintings. They can be profound. They can give you profound experiences. They can make you laugh and cry and change your life. However, you don't die if you don't listen to music or as miserable as you might be, or as miserable as you might become. If you don't eat food, eventually you're going to die. So this makes the whole thing of when you're looking at food to trigger nostalgia, generate emotions, imagination, playfulness, curiosity, all of these wonderful things that we can do with, 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 with food. At the same time, we're hardwired for survival. And I think that our senses evolved to protect our gut because we, we eat to feed our all the little fellas, all our microbes in our gut. So that our mouth is like the last, imagine a nightclub, your name's not down here, you're not coming in. The <laughs> eyes, the ears, the nose, the hands, all of these are sensory protectors for the mouth. Plus our memory, and exactly like you said, predicting. Food is so safe generally for us. If you were going to walk through the jungle, let's say you're on some wildlife holiday or you're walking through, oh yeah, you just walk, you walk through a forest and you see a mushroom growing and it might look beautiful and it's red with white dots. You're not going to eat it. Mm. You're not going to take the risk. But if you go to the supermarket and there's a packet of mushrooms in a, you know, in a, in a box or in a, in, a, in a section of the supermarket, well, you're going to buy it. You don't stop to think that that might be dangerous for you. So again, this is linked to uh, the brain and the body's defense mechanisms. We, are, we, we focus our attention on areas where we think we might need to focus our attention. It's interesting because I've heard you use the phrase anchor before, putting an anchor in. And I've heard you when you've been with your development chefs as well saying that. And you're, I've never realized it's such a part of your creation of the dishes. You always aim to have one of those things that sort of anchors it to a familiar or real place for the diner. So then you can go off to any way you like, as long as there's something they can sort of, the rope they can follow, like the anchor line if you're diving. I, I th yeah, I think it's really important. And, and if the anchor is, if the anchor can be um, shared, so for example, if you've got a table of four, you've got a shared anchor. So the shared anchor, for example, and we've done this with on the TV shows, food's got this incredible ability to put us in time and place, either the present or memory, and to share with, with, with people. So the anchor, if we did something on barbecues, that could be an anchor. Or Christmas is, a, is, is an anchor. Then within Christmas you have, you know, Christmas crackers is another anchor. But what, if, you, if you've, got, you've got something there that collectively you can go, okay, I know where we are now. Because I know where we are, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a little play around to go from this point where, where I'm safe. And then I can come back to it. I think it's really important because if you just throw random, unless, unless the anchor, I'm just thinking this now, the anchor is tonight we are just going to throw random things at you. <laughs> <laughs> that might work though, wouldn't it? That'll actually get you ready for it. Yeah, then, people are, okay. you know what you're getting. It's an anchor. Yeah, like someone said to me, I was talking about the difference between 
is a humongous difference between home cooks, home cooking and, let's say, three mission style restaurant. In particular, I'm talking about my experience in the duck. If I cook at home, I mean, I, even, even if I wanted to, it would take me too long to do the dishes that we do at the duck. It needs a massive team and, and, so, and so much work. But if I'm cooking at home, I like having a limited amount of ingredients because it challenge, challenges my creativity. But I might think I might prefer more pepper one day than the other, or a different type of pepper, or I just might open the cupboard and think, I'll put some of that in. And I might think, am I going to this fish, am I going to steam it or grill it or saute it or something? It depends how I feel. So I will, I will cook intuitively, depending on what I've got, how I'm feeling, and many other reasons. However, imagine in a kitchen, let's say you've got 30 chefs, and you go, right, guys, I, actually, this could be a really interesting... Uh, people would probably pay good money for this. I'm talking and thinking. <laughs> uh, bear with me, guys. I'm talking and thinking at the same time here. I was starting to say, think how chaotic it could be. This is what I'm about to tell you. How chaotic that could be. However, at the same time, I'm thinking, God, that could be really interesting. So imagine you're going to the duck and you, you've, you've prepared yourself to go on this journey, this adventure, day's holiday, memory, nostalgia, all of the things that we'd like people to come with, a, you know, focusing their attention on that part of what we're trying to do. And each table would get the same dish that might be personalized individually, but otherwise it's basically the same. If you said to the kitchen, right, guys, just t t do something intuitively. And there could be young chefs in the kitchen, somebody, and there could be a roast duck for main course with a, you know, with some braised truffle-covered turnips, and then somebody sees a banana in the fridge and just puts a whole banana with the skin on on top of it. You're going to have an outcry, aren't you? <laughs> I'd like to apologise in advance to the brigade of the fat duck who are going to be having this given to them over the next week but or I wonder, are crying I listening to this. If you, if you, that, if that, if that was an experiment for one night only, we're going to give the whole team the freedom to do what they want. I don't know the response. It would, it would. I'd, I'd, I'd be chewing my fingernails off, probably. Yeah, but it's what I've seen in your development kitchen over and over again. Every time I walked in there, there was always ten interesting, fun experiments going on. Majority of the time, ten out of ten of them went nowhere, but they were just trying stuff intuitively instinctively just oh i wonder what this what wonder what this does i wonder what that does and i think it was really interesting that there was always that freedom of expression there but once things got closer and closer to the restaurant obviously they became more and more honed because all those experiments those that pyramid of experiences were going into that into that moment so you almost want to be you know welcoming people into that area because that's the place where anything goes yeah I mean, I, I, I sort of, one way of looking at this is called restless perfectionism. So I, I think that you have, there's a perfectionist approach, which I see as manufacturing. So producing something consistently is, is a perfectionist approach. However, that is also can be very damaging for creativity because in a perfectionist approach, there's also the risk of, the, there's also the risk of fear of failure developing. So, if you didn't have a perfectionist approach, let's say you're making mobile phones, iPhones or something, and some came out triangular and only worked on a Tuesday afternoon and one day and a Wednesday morning next, wouldn't go down too well. You have a plan and then it's like, a, imagine a tree, design a train and then you put it on its train tracks. So that's moving from the development side, which is, which is a non-linear sort of, a non-linear, non-perfectionist approach where you can fail fast 
and embrace failure as opportunity to learn. That's how you learn some amazing things through things that you might think you fail, but in fact, if you, if you tip that on its head and say, look, how, what, 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 we've learned something from this, that could be the source of great creation. But at some point when they're ready, you have to hand it over to the, to the kitchen, that the train, the, the, the new, the new um, train cart, you put it on its tracks and then it goes onto the menu and off it runs on its tracks, meanders through the mountains and over the rivers and through, through the through the forests etc etc and then within that train you can modify it so you continue to tweak just because a dish is on the menu people ask you know about changing the menu we change the menu every i mean almost every day the names don't necessarily change but it's continually tweaking and tweaking and tweaking but there is um a general approach where also people think they've been there done that seen that next board i want the next thing now but in fact, if you work a craft or work an art, it's only by tirelessly zooming into the invisible stuff that creates the visible stuff, but occasionally also zooming out. So you've got to zoom in and in and out to get a really deeper understanding of the ingredients or to get a deeper understanding of just of, of your craft. It doesn't matter if you're a carpenter or a chef or a musician or an artist or, you know, painter, decorator or whatever. There's no substitute for being able to spend time doing something with awareness. So purposeful practice and failure with awareness is, is very, very precious purposeful practice. Which, you know, in the, in the arc of the fat duck dishes, the counting sheep dish is a relative newcomer but it already feels like it has such a roundness and wealth of different experiences within it that it's already on a par with all the other ones in the menu where it's, 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 it's staying a lot to you and it's really challenging your senses within that. And I think that speaks to the experience you've had over the past 25 years. Yeah, and that's, I suppose, un, unknowingly, or no, I wasn't really aware until we actually got to the point where I realised, actually, this dish, you know, everything's multi-sensory. Every, I mean, a carrot is multi-sensory. It'll have a smell, it'll have a crunch, have a texture, it'll have a taste, have a, have a you know, touch, it'll have a visual element to it. But where I've actually uh, intentionally played with heightening the, 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 the key five senses, so there's touch, obviously. I mean, all food is touch when you eat it, but, but, but highlighting it with a handle um, of the... Um, you know, the spoon, the fake fur. There's obviously the smell and the tasting the smell, the smell of the baby talc and the smell of the handle. There's the sound from the noise, the, the chimes and the music from the mobile. Um, you've got the whole visual element, light and fluffy, and then the magic of the spinning and the, and, and the lights changing at the table. And obviously then you've got the taste. And so that dish, I think, is really... That's the one where all those main five senses have been showcased and it's taken an awful lot of work actually that was my arm i just i paused about the amount of time again and again and again and again and again and again <laughs> and I restless love the fact, perfectionism i love the fact that it ultimately started out with you going hmm i wonder what talcum powder tastes like which i think is just <laughs> such a fantastically wonderfully crazy place to start on a dish that is unfortunately all we have time for today on counting sheep a little note for our listeners ahead of times um 
obviously you're probably shouting at your uh, your devices now asking all sorts of questions that I'm not asking on your behalf. So the good news is in a few weeks time we're going to be having a special podcast where I hand over the questions to you. We're going to be doing a mailbag episode where you can ask any questions you like of Heston and we'll be cherry picking the very best to ask on Journey to the Centre of Food. So do start sending those into us. Uh, DM us on Instagram at Heston's Podcast uh, is a good way to get them through to us. Plus we'll be getting out the emails and the Twitters to you next week so you can start sending them in. So think of all the things you want to be asking Heston. Uh, But for this week, Heston, thank you. That was a delightful trip inside something very peaceful and calming and fluffy for our dinner. Lovely. And next week, shampoo. No, I haven't. I, I, I haven't got that far yet. I, I, I can't think of a shampoo that I could even. I could even. Uh, I could even uh, name. To be honest, I mean, if you look at my hair, it's not something that I. Uh, I I'm not the world's largest consumer of it. Till next week. All that's left to say is thank you and goodbye, Heston. Goodbye, Jay, and thank you very much.